Hi, it's Tuesday night, and just finished a long day with uh, running a lecture for Saturday night, which we're going to send out on the YouTube. Uh, but let me now take advantage because I'm going to have a very packed week. Uh, if I can do this uh, podcast tonight, uh, which is uh, tonight's podcast is being sponsored. That's interesting uh, history. It's being sponsored by the Asmans and by Moshe Asman. Uh, student of mine who uh, is for his grandfather, his mother's father, in his memory, who's the yard site this week. That's uh, Israel Rosenberg um, from Brooklyn. Israel Benef Toy Benyamin. And Moshe said that his grandfather was from Kloisenberg, that tells you a lot, and was a slave laborer during the war. I, uh, in other words, I don't think they're Hasidic. As much as I know, they're not Hasidic. But uh, Kloisenberg was actually not a Hasidic in town. Kloisenberg, whatever. And that's a separate story, but um, these were the 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 from Jews of old, and uh, he went through the Holocaust. That tells you a lot. Uh, my parents also from the Holocaust, so Nisham Sham and Ali, and we thank Moshe for the uh, sponsorship. The Asman family, for those of you who know, is an old Baldwin family, at least as I reckon it. I remember his grandfather, great grandfather's, uh, what do you call it, bakery uh, in the old neighborhood, the Asman Bakery, the Kosher Bakery. Anyhow. Um, thank you. Today I'm going to talk about the Marik. The reason is because, not as the yard or anything like that, but one of my best sponsors asked me to do so, and anybody who has a, who's a good, and uh, <laughs> what's the right word, loyal sponsor, uh, gets Kadima with me. And I appreciate everyone's support and help. So, uh, Marik is interesting. I haven't seen that in a long time, but I'm happy to talk about him. Uh, those of you who know I'm talking about, Tamarik was the greatest rabbi in Italian Jewish history. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> now I can finish the talk. That's quite a statement I just made. He's the biggest Godel ever produced in Italy. <laughs> That's pretty good. And after all, uh, you don't see, there are other big rabbis, obviously I spoke about that, but you don't see in the Shulchan Aruch and in the world, you know, this name thrown around or that name thrown around. Even big people like the Mar, you know, Mar Pado or something like that, you know, the big, the Marik is everywhere, right? It's all over Shulchan it's all over the Mechaber, all over the Ramah. And uh, so let's get down to brass tacks. Our hero, uh, Yosef Cologne, uh, is from is from Italy, but sort of, not exactly. He spent his life there. And we're talking now the 15th century, because he lived from 1420 to 1480. So he did not live a long life. It's always important to get your facts down. Uh, here's somebody who died at the age of 60, so if he became a big person, he became a big person in his uh, 30s, 40s, 50s. By 60, he's dead. Okay? And he lived all of his life in Italy, kind of. No, actually. But it's not, um, but this requires a little bit of explanation. Now, Maria, let me put it this way. When you and I speak of Italian jewelry, and I have from time to time, and here I'm talking about the Renaissance. Exactly, he lived in the time of the Renaissance, the time of the Medici, Lorenzo de Medici, all those guys. He's exactly that era of the 1400s. So, Italy as a single country, of course, didn't exist, as I've explained many times. Italy was a bunch of different Medinas. And the Jews of Italy uh, were actually pouring into Italy in the 1300s and 1400s. When I say pouring in, I mean in very small numbers. But constant pouring in because Italy never had a lot of people. Ad Kedekach, that most of the Jews who came to live in Italy after the 13, 1400s were not Italiani Jews. 
The Italian Jews, as I've said a hundred times, but don't worry, you don't have to remember, are from Rome. And there were Jews, like I spoke about a couple weeks ago, with, uh, what's the name, in Ancona, the uh, doctor. Simpson, more poor goat. Yeah, there are Italian Jews. And they have their own minhagim and so on and so forth. But the rove was Ashkenaz. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the majority, physically, of the Jews who reside in the place called Italy ended up moving there into the north of Italy from neighboring countries. And the neighboring countries were Ashkenaz Jews. Now, why would Ashkenaz Jews move to Italy? Things were bad in anti-Semitism in the other countries. I was there anti-Semitism in Italy? Of course. It's headquarters of the Catholic Church, but less. <laughs> right? It's all relative numbers. If in this case they beat you up ten times, and the other place they beat you up eight times, the other place is better. That's unfortunately how our ancestors had to look at life. Now, in the case of our hero, we have something very unusual. This is French Ashkenazic jewelry. Uh, as everybody knows, Rashi was French. No, it was Rashi's Ashkenaz, Spitz Ashkenaz. But in the time of Rashi, who lived in the 10 hundreds, um, the Ashkenazi Jews lived in what we would call today northern France. Rashi himself lived not too far from Paris. And also into Germany. That's what they call Ashkenaz. France and Germany, France and West Germany. Uh, now, the Jews in France and West Germany are all Ashkenazic and more or less the same, but the key word is more or less. There are different menhagim and different menhagas in certain things. And there was a very distinct French way of doing uh, halachas and learning and all that, which, while similar, is still distinct from what they did in Germany. Uh, there are books about all this. I think uh, Professor Canafog writes about this, if I'm not mistaken. Anyhow, uh, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, if you want to know what the French way of doing things, look at the Maxer Vitry, because it's Talmud of Rashi, Simcha Vitry. Vitry is a town in France. Now, the Jews in France had it good, relatively speaking, in the 1000s and the 1100s. But then, things went south. And the king, uh, Philip Augustus, who came aboard in 1189, 1190, he was the first of a bunch of anti-Semitic French kings who really took it out on the Jews and really screwed them over. And over the course of the... Now, he started at the end of the 1100s. So over the course of the 1200s, the Jews really took it in the chin. They burned all the Gemaras. You may possibly remember that story and many other persecutions. And uh, it was just one long Vio Dolorosa of Gezeris. Now what they ended up doing was kicking the Jews out, letting them back in, kick them out, letting them back in. That's the history and the fate of, of Jews in France. Now by the time we get to the 1300s, uh, it was really bad. But it's weird. The Jews were like um, expelled one time. I think like in the very early 1300s. And then they were let back in. And then they're expelled again. <laughs> it's not that they're having uh, fun at their expense, but rather that they were, you know, sickos. You know? It was good for the economy. I don't want to go through There was a big exile in 1306, and then they let them back in 1315, and they kicked them back out in 1394. I mean, not that you need to know the years. But it goes to show you, over the course of these years, the Jews were uh, like uh, metallic. You move them around, throw them in, throw them out, throw them in, throw them out. But my key point is, that um, until 1394 and even a little, even afterwards, uh, there were Jews still left in France. And uh, our hero is from that background. 
Now, the French Jews had a distinct way of doing Ashkenazic Jewry. And I might point out that they had a distinct way of learning. Okay? All of which went through um, evolution and changes as the 12 and 1300s proceeded. This is Drupal Ashkenaz. And uh, what we call the Pilpul and all that of the classic sort. Had the Jews of France. But even though the political conditions were bad, uh, there was Jewish life in France, contrary to what many people think. Many people think Jews kicked out of France, that's the end of it. Uh, it's very complicated. I don't want to overbore you with details. Half of France is called France. The southern half of France is called Provence. The expulsion of the Jews in, in 1306 and 1394 did not apply to the Jews in Provence. So there were Jews in France, even though the Jews kicked out of France. There, Did I confuse you? Now, things were pretty anti-Semitic. And as a result, many of the Jews, uh, especially after 1394, just left and moved next door to Italy, but to the part of Italy which is next door to France. And that's called the Duchy of Savoy, or Piedmont, or... Uh, no, that's usually what it's called. Uh, there's a royal family there that uh, ruled down till uh, Mussolini's time, the House of Savoy. And these rulers were totally selfish, Sometimes a lot of the Jews didn't, sometimes they didn't. And so our hero was born in 1420, which is about 25 years after the Jews were kicked out of France. And that means that a lot of these Talmud Chachamim moved close to France, just in the next country over. And he was born in Savoy, in Chambéry. Uh, in these little places, I wouldn't even take anybody there today on a uh, tour. They're beautiful little towns, but they're very little Jewish history there. But they're, it's very interesting. For each one of these towns, like the ember, for a certain Tukufa, it was hot and then it went, went then it cooled down. Uh, in Chambéry, uh, our hero was born in, in a refugee community. It's like somebody being born in the 1950s to, you know, in, in, in uh, what do you call it, near the Mary Shaman Brooklyn, you know what I'm saying? That yeah, kind of thing. Ocean Park, right? You're in America, but it's really a Yiddish speaking thing, people talking about the old days. And the whole style of learning is from the old country. And that's who the Marik was, Yosef Colon. He was a uh, Trabato, whatever. His, his, he, he grew up in that kind of environment, in a small community. But the small community has a, 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 where he lived had a fairly large number of Tamidich uh, HaHama, which is unusual. Okay? Which is unusual. So it's a place where a bunch of rabbis ran away to. Including his father. If I told you the names of these big rabbis in France, nobody's ever heard of them. They were big in their day and they weren't little people, but, you know, in the, in the yeshivish culture, nobody's ever heard of Yochan and Travis. You know, people are like, yeah, never heard of them. But they were big, okay? And they knew how to learn very well. And especially Pesach And that's part of our story. So our hero grew up in this little town, um, where, by the way, they had, if I remember correctly, they had the original, listen to this, they had the original manuscripts of Tosfus. And when I say toasts, I mean the toasts that we use in the Gemara's today. Toast is tush. Relezer of tuk, of tush. You know, the, the certain way the toasts were edited, and most of the toasts, not all of them, you have in the Gemara's today from that. And so that means that, you know, he grew up in a place with French Jews, and toasts is not foreign because toasts is French. And so the whole idea of being Mayan in that particular way and doing the Gemara's is fundamental to the way he was raised. Now, um, he studied with his father, you know. It doesn't even matter who he studied with, because you never heard of these people. And the point is, 
to use a, 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 a terms that may possibly be understood by my listeners, I'm already an old man. I don't know if they'll know what I'm talking about. It's probably like I said, he grew up in Brooklyn in the 50s. And, you know, the people that teach him in learning are Altamirs or something like that. So, so they're living in America, but they're mentally living in the old country. So he well, they, he lived in Italy, but he's mentally living in France. But it's the France of the rabbinic class, the, you know, the, 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 the rabbinic elite. And so he's trained uh, to learn Shas and Postkim in the old style, which is very interesting, the, the specific French way. And um, during his life, and he didn't live that long, he was a London. That's what he did. Now, I remember in his early years, he had trouble finding Parnosa because Italy is not many communities, and the, the, most of them are extremely tiny. And for a while, just like happened after the Second World War, some of these big guys had to be elementary school teachers. I remember that. You know, some big company, Chachamim, had to be fifth grade teacher, sixth grade teacher. That's the only jobs in the world. That's exactly what happened to him. Then he went to different communities in northern Italy. doesn't matter where, because you don't know where these places are. And he served here, served here, served here. Until little by little, his reputation as somebody that really knows how to learn, really knows how to learn, and most importantly into, is into Pesach When I say Pesach I mean out of the Gemara. We're talking about a time in history before the Shulchan Aruch existed. We're talking about a time in history where mainly you had the Rambam, and some of the copies of the tour were getting around over there in that part of the country, not many of them. And so you really had to learn, you know, from the Gemara and then using the Rashi Tosas and the Mordechai. That was the uh, style in those days. That's where you get your din from. But from that world, uh, so he emerged as very uh, uh, outstanding. And uh, little by little, he started to get Talmudim. So a guy who started as a third grade Rebbe, but a couple years later, he actually got Talmudim. He had like a stick of Yeshiva. Eventually, Yeshiva got bigger. He moved from this place. This place, I remember... The most important period was when he was in Mantua. Mantua is the capital of a duchy of Mantua, which has always been an important Jewish community. Now, when I say an important Jewish community, it's a community of 500 people, you know, six, six, seven hundred people at the most. In his time, maybe a little bit more. But as I've tried to say over and over again, in Italy, it's so interesting because you have these small Jewish communities, and he lived in the 15th century, so there were no ghettos. Ghettos start in the 16th century. But nevertheless, it's a Jewish neighborhood. It's always under some duke. Um, the duke is always some renaissance figure, like the Borges and all that. He's always uh, poisoning everybody, killing everybody, raping everybody. That's who the, 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 the leaders were. And the Jewish communities were everywhere. had to learn how to kiss up to the guy and uh, be allowed a certain amount of liberty. And usually, most of the time, the Jews were allowed in, if you know your Italian Jewish history in the 15th century, many books on it, to be pawnbrokers, to do small loans. Uh, because somebody had to do that or society would go crazy. Everybody in the world needs loans and mortgages, so do you. Uh, in Italy, the big guys like the Medici, they dealt with high numbers in government finance, but somebody got taken to the small schleppers. The Christian merchants who were successful didn't want to deal with the small schleppers. They didn't want to handle five cents and ten cents loans, so let the Jews do it. That's what's the main place, the job the Jews were during the time of the Marik, Joseph Klon. He ended up in Mantua, and being there was a big community, and a lot of, and, and I tell you again, it's so fascinating, it's relatively turns a big community, really it's actually a, numerically a small community, but everybody is Jewish over there, and um, he was able to start a yeshiva, 
and uh, be successful. He attracted Talmudim, and his name grew. These Talmudim told other Talmudim, a little by little, his uh, reputation expanded. And other guys came from other places to learn by him. And that's how he spent the rest of his life. He merged into Rosh Hashiva, but uh, it, with a very distinct style of learning, not the way we do today. And uh, it's very interesting. The Chalkas Machokeg later on writes about it. And he says, He said, Listen to this, this is very interesting. So they would learn, let's say, for example, Metziah. You skip Tosis, just Gomorashi. That's it. Page after page, Gomorashi. And your job is to do, I'll just make this up, half above Metziah, or a third above Metziah, whatever they set aside, and know it more or less Balpeh. And you have six months to do that. So in other words, you learn, you learn, you learn, you chazer, 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 you learn, 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 chazer, 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 and then you chazer more. B'chol yom halacha ad shagamru esesugya. Okay, so they finished whatever, so like I said before, let's say for argument's sake, they're going to learn, I'm just making this up, they learn two uh, 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 chapters in Babasiyah, let's put it that way. B'yachar kachuzman hasheni, and then the second half of the year, after six months it is, B'chazi shana shniya, so you would spend all day long just doing tosis. In, in interesting, right? Now, by current some tosis man. So you had a, a regular man and a tosis man. Uh, this is the old uh, style of the pilpul, because meanwhile, when you went through the first half, it wasn't only marashi; it was that, but you asked yourself a lot of questions. And let's say, for example, Gemara says one thing on one page, and three pages later says something different. So then you call attention to that with your chavruz, you make notes about it, then you try to come up with your own answer if you can, or the Rebbe might discuss it. And then when you learn Tosa, you say, oh, that was our question, <laughs> right? Now, I warn you, in the 15th century, if you were Mechamed to Tosa's question, there's a problem. Because Tosa doesn't write anything, you can figure out yourself. That's how they wrote it at that time. Then you got to figure what's the spar me bachutz. Natosis is running about. Uh, this can lead you down all kind of wild and crazy paths, but not our hero, because at the same time he became famous for, you know, learning the sugya aliba the hilchasa. So you must have some kind of system about that. And if you know the shulchan aruch over there in Yordea, the it's very famous. The Ramal quotes this. Uh, what's a rov in terms of hilchas covered rabo? And it's a quote from the Marik, from our hero. Ikar harabonus, eno toli b'misha lamad pilpul b'chalukim hanahugim. The rov isn't consisting of being a good magad shir lamdus. Rak b'misha lamad limi b'sak halacha v'mid all emes. Your rebbe is the one who taught you b'sak halacha and put you on the on the road of emes. Ha pilpul who daber chashiv, but but dami pshitzit hinu. It's pasha to me that pilpul is very important. So these are little bits. You find who the personality of the of our hero is. Now, what's famous is so so basically what happened is he graduated students, they moved to other little towns, some became rabbis, a small place in Italy. I'm telling you, if I told you the place, Casa della Casale, you don't even know these things exist. And really, 
The committees were 20 people, 30 people, you know, very small. But they're all over northern Italy, uh, I would say, from Tuscany and the Romagna northward to the Swiss border. And uh, guys are up there, and he's corresponding with the Rebbe. And if he had a Shiloh, who do you do? You write back to your Rebbe. Now, he's relatively young. If he died at 60, Rebbe is 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, you know what I mean? Like that. And these become the Shiloh to his America. Uh, he, as a, I think you notice it without me starting here, certainly my sponsor knows, Dumerick is famous for writing very clearly. He's very lumbish, but is, is a clear, you understand? And, um, you know, copies were made. A student would say, wow, he just wrote me something on film. I'm going to send it to a friend of mine, make a copy sent to a friend of mine, and the friend of mine says another friend of mine. Next thing you know, they're scattering during his lifetime. The guy's 40 years old, and his stuff is being copied and sent all over Europe, up to Prague, up to Constantinople, places like that. And once people far away, this is the 15th century, see it, let's say, for example, in Turkey, they'll write him shallows too. And so you can sort of tell if you're a real historian and you line up, this has been done, you line up all the shuvas and you kind of periodize them. You can see that in the first part, he got mostly from a little place in Italy, then he got from Orkhashva kills in Italy, then he got from the whole world. So by the time he died, he was a world figure, which is remarkable in the 15th century because there was no modern communications, okay? And you can also tell, at least this is my opinion, I only can tell you my opinion, they kind of gained with confidence, and after a while he saw that he Taka knows his stuff. I say again, he himself saw he knows his stuff, and he and my throne goes weight around. I mean that in a good way, not a bad way. And so, for example, I remember this, there was a big t- trouble in his time, as I said, in uh, 15th century was a bad anti-Semitism everywhere. That's just the way it goes. That wasn't a time to live. It was just a bummer. And in Germany, which wasn't that far away, and remember, he is Ashkenaz, but he's not a Yeki, he's a French, okay? Although I remember he ran into somebody who was a Talmud of the Trimazadeshen in Vienna, in Wiener Neustadt, and uh, he's very impressed with the way Trimazadeshen learned, and he sort of amalgamated it into his own way. So you have here someone who represents, in my opinion, kind of the best of all the Ashkenazic tradition, the French stuff and the German stuff. They're very interesting in that way. That's why the Marik became world famous. I think. And that's that's what I, that's why you heard of him. Uh, now, I was saying that uh, you had terrible anti-Semitism and a lot of blood libels. Uh, now, you had one or two in Italy also. There's the famous one in France. But it was particularly dangerous in Germany because Germany had a terrible history of violence against Jews. And every time there's a blood libel somewhere, it often spilled into a riot, and they killed out the whole Jewish communities. Uh, many times this happened in Germany. And I remember there was a blood libel in Regensburg in his time. And he wasn't that old at this time. And uh, the problem was, uh, let's put it this way, whenever Jews faced these blood libels or accusations or stomp persecution, they had only one uh, strategy. If you're Jewish, you cannot fight. You don't have any weapons, you're tiny, you, know, you can't fight. So whenever, I'm just teaching you something today. Whenever the Jews ever had a problem anywhere, the old school way of dealing with it is what? You try to put together money. And you pay off whoever you can pay off, and you hope that works. You hope that works. Because sometimes it's terrible. They don't want to get paid off for it. They pay off, and they, and, and they don't, you know, like Abraham Lincoln says, an honest politician, you buy him, and he stays bought. Boy, sometimes you buy him, and he didn't stay bought. 
So in best case scenario, you're always raising money to pay off the Pope. You're always raising money for something or other, or the bishop, or the duke, or the king, or the emperor, or the city council, or this jerk and that blockhead, this momser. That's how Jewish life was. That's the Gaulish. Okay? That's the Gaulish. And I remember it was in Regensburg in South Germany, and there was a blood libel. And uh, they're going to get killed. Uh, because this is the Middle Ages, you know. First they'll, have the, first they'll kill them, then they'll have the trial. I'm talking about the Jews. They'll kill Jews and then have the trial. And so, um, Regensburg appealed to other Jewish communities in South Germany, saying, help us raise money. Now, you have to understand, wherever Jews lived, especially in Germany, but also in Italy, the taxes were taxes and taxes and taxes. You gotta pay this, you gotta pay that. It was always very tough being Jewish because of the high taxes. It's just, like I say, part of life. Okay? Of our avos and our emos. You just hit with crazy taxes. To use modern uh, example, a typical Jewish community would probably have to raise two-thirds of everybody's salary just for the taxes. It's almost as bad as tuition. <laughs> right? Now, uh, to pay off this and do that, and the big Shiloh was, and this is sad, this is a halachic Shiloh of our ancestors that popped up all the time in the Middle Ages and the early modern era. If a community is under direct threat, do other Jewish communities in more or less in the vicinity, are they under a, a halachic obligation to kick in money to help the, the, the community that's under attack? Or no? Is every Jewish community sort of independent by itself? And if you feel like sending them a sadaqah, you do. If you don't, you don't. Is there, are you a chayev? And the rabbis in Nuremberg all got together, meaning the rabbis in South Germany assembled in Nuremberg, that's first where the yeshiva, famous yeshiva was. What to do about this blood libel uh, case? I'm just giving you one example of a, of a thousand, or at least a hundred. And the question was, what do you do? Now, the, the, the Stamiakis, they said, most of the German Jews said, I guess, we don't want to pay for somebody else. If we have a problem, we'll take care of our own. But the Rabbonim is supposed to see farther than that. And he's a chacham no leg. And I'm, I'm telling you this for a reason. And they got together and they say, it is an obligation for all the communities to raise money to help, uh, to help Regensburg. Because if, they, it, because if they go down and get wiped out, it'll spread. It'll eventually hit us. So you have these, uh, you know, Gemara-type questions about farmers in a field or there's a river if you help them out. Well, whatever. Here's my point. And they write to the Marik, who I think was a relatively young guy in Italy. And they said, we hold that everybody's high of to kick in money. Uh, we would like to back up our deliberations, like a hundred rabbis, by putting in chayim, anybody doesn't agree. But in Germany, the Jews have their hands tied. They're not per- the rabbis are not permitted by the government to put anybody in chayim. Uh Will you do so? you got a big name. You're like Ramosha Feinstein at that time. <laughs> will you put these guys in here? And the Marik says, yes, I will. And so, the, that speaks volumes, at least to me. Now here's somebody, like I say, must have been in his 30s, maybe 40, and all these big rabbis in Germany appealing to him. And if he comes out with it and says anybody does it, it will be in here if he doesn't participate, because, as I say, based on the principle that everybody has to help fix the same river. So... Um, uh, he must have had a, a kayak, you know what I mean? He must have had a charisma out there, which is, which is just interesting. Uh, I myself, this is a funny story, first came across the Marik many, many moons ago uh, when I was once with my old Rebbe from that time, Rottenberg, I can't remember the occasion, 
we went to New York and ended up in this farm store. No we side at that time. And I picked up my rake, Charles and Shoes Mark. I didn't know what it exactly was. And he said, buy it. You'll find it interesting. And I was very young. And I did. And it was an old Marek. I mean, you know, uh, Photostad. Uh, actually, Photostad by Satmar. I'm going somewhere with this. And uh, I kept it with me in the house. Later on, I gave it to somebody because they had a new edition of Marek. And then later on, I read somewhere in some history book. And it's in the Shulchan Aruch, That the Marek said, it's okay to dress in Geisha clothing. If it's not a Vodazar type thing or for Gaiba. So in other words, let's put it this way. You in America, uh, you wear a hat, a jacket, you, let's say you do that. Or you don't. Uh, you dress regular in America. Uh, like I say, you have a tie, which is an unknown thing in Judaism. A jacket, a white shirt, pants. Uh, you're dressing in, in American style. Uh, no, you're not dressing Hasidish. Okay. I uh, So you shouldn't imitate them in any dress whatsoever. Why aren't you like a satmer? That every item of dress that you have is different and deliberately so than host society. So it's all from a so let me put it this way. If you follow the classic technical logic literature, they'll say, well, the Marik said long ago, he was asked about a kappa, which was a, a cape which a Jewish doctor would wear as a sign that he's official as MD. And it's a geisha thing. But the Mark said it's okay because it's, it's just a professional garb. Like you'd say today, you walk around in a white coat and stethoscope, you know. Doctors, <laughs> if you see them, they'll go into a drugstore with a stethoscope. they got to tell everybody that they're doctors. Uh, but the Hizikar point was, it's not, it's not a chukas agai. Now, if you walk around with a cross or something like that, if you walk around, if there was such a thing as a special Christmas clothing or Easter clothing or something like that, but if you walk on regular, then it's like quote-unquote neutral or secular, right? And that became the basis of Ramal quotes it. For those Jews who already hundreds of years ago started to dress like regular Europeans. I mean, they wore scissors. I'm talking about people even wearing yarmulke, but everything else not. Uh, so I said to myself, wow, I never saw that in my rig. And I pulled out my rick, and I went there. I think it was Peches, Peites, something like that. Watch this. Pevav, Pezayin, Tzadi. No, it skipped it. It was censored. Because the, the Satmar put it out. And there's a no-no. Now, uh, there was some Satmar Bachar, I guess, reading. That, you know, my rick. It's, it's funny. I tell you the truth, I wish I kept that copy. I gave it to somebody long ago. Well, maybe it's my son-in-law. I don't think so. As long ago. Because that's a wonderful example of the kind of censorship we have over here. Even though it's straight in the Shulchan Aruch. Ramal quotes it. Uh, so that got me interested in Marik when I was very young. And uh, then I saw, you know, a couple other famous uh, sorts of things that came to my attention. And uh, you could see then that he's like a biggie. I mean, long ago... If you ever have a dry Torah on Purim, you're always going to come across the Marik. Uh, because, you know, the classic question of Queen Esther and all that Torah, you know, Kasher uh, Avadati Avadati, and wasn't she an Oynes? Uh, I mean, she didn't want to do it with Akashverish. That's a famous Marik, you know, 
who's, he's not the only one, but it's the one that everybody quotes, a lady who had to seduce Robin Hood in order to save her husband's life and all other people. And so she did a shame shemaim to save them, otherwise they would have been killed. And unfortunately, it's not a, an unknown thing in Jewish history. And then Marik says, it's true, she did save him, she got a mitzvah, uh, but it's mola bomal. But she was, it's a me'ila, you know, the language of Sota is mola bomal. And that's a very famous Marik also. But what am I saying? There's hundreds of them, because his house and she was spread around the world. And as they say, poor in his lifetime, became famous. Now, what's interesting is that in this town of Mantua, he got a world reputation. But there was another guy there also who had a yeshiva. So it boggles the mind that you have two great scholars living in a small Jewish community. You know, like Gibraltar, a small Jewish community, five, six, six, seven people, seven hundred people all together, men, women, children. But that community includes others because boys from a lot of different places come to learn in yeshiva in that place. I have no idea what the logistics were, where the boys slept. And that kind of stuff. I just don't know how they took care of meals. But it could be that the yeshiva population was as large as the community itself. And in Mantua, you had like that with the Marik and then uh, Rehuda Messerleon. Uh, and it's a fascinating, to me anyway, I'll tell you what to me. It's a fascinating human story because there were two different types. Both were very big Tamir Chachamim. But. Um, they had different personalities, and it's pretty clear to me that Behuda Messer Leon was the personification of Torah Mata in the 15th century, as Mata was understood at that time. Because Behuda Messer Leon was a big Talmud Chacham, and a great Magad Shir and all that, and he was a charismatic Rosh Hashiva. Rosh Hashiva, I repeat. On the other hand, he was a professor in the university. He's a Rabbi Yishuber Salvechik, that type, you know? He's a professor in the university in Italy in the 15th century. Actually, it's called Messer Leon. Messer means uh, he's like a professor. It's a, it's a high cost of Gaisha a title. And he was an MD in addition. And he wrote books on rhetoric, which is very Khashiv. And uh, he really was the personification of Torah Mata. Okay? In the highest sense of the word. And there, and speaks Italian, you know, all that stuff. Latin. Now, he has the yeshiva. And then, it can't be more than a block away. It's a small community. Two blocks away is this other guy, Demarik, who's very yeshivish. Right? Uh, in other words, he lives all his life in Italy, but I can guarantee you, he wasn't into Mata, you know. He's into, like I said before, yeah, the Tosis Mata, the Pilpus Mata, all the other things. And Halach and writing Shalos and Shubas, which Rebuta Messalon didn't write too much of. After all, take it from me. If you got to be a teaching college all the rest of you, you're not going to have time for everything. And so, uh, these are two people that for a while they got along. And it must have been just amazing to be in the middle of, of the 15th century and to be in northern Italy, Mantua, which is a well-known, pretty town. And uh, it's a center of Italian Renaissance intrigue and politics, if you know about the Gonzaga dynasty and all that. And, uh, and the wars of Milan, and so forth. And you live in this town, and of course there's a shoal or two, and it's Ashkenaz, everybody's Ashkenaz. Uh, maybe Mastelion was Italian, I take that back. But it doesn't matter. And there are lots of yeshiva bacharim running around. Here's a good question. Did any bachar also go to college? If he went to Mastelion's yeshiva, 
Do you also go to college? After all, the Rosh Hashiva teach you in college. <laughs> it's a funny, it's funny. In Italy, you can find this stuff. Uh, so there's one yeshiva, and then two blocks away, something that's another yeshiva. For a while, they got along. And then, it seems that they didn't. There's a famous story in the uh, old chronicle, Shalshel's Kabbalah, which is notorious for not being reliable, but it might be true. And that is that eventually, the two Rosh was quarreled, the Marik and the other guy in the Udemes Leon. Uh, it's very possible. In fact, I would almost say it's almost combustible. If you have two Shebas from two big personalities, and they're not the same, and they're, no, they're, they're both, uh, what's the right word, you know, tzaddikim in the sense of I'm in a skuf in the dresses. You can walk all over me, which that's not what a Rashi's personality is. I can totally hear that boys from this issue and boys that issue start fighting with each other and say, my rabbi's this, my rabbi's that. And next thing you know, a big lush and hard situation comes up. And according to Shalshal it got to fights and riots, uh, fist fights in the street and, the, and in the shoals and all that sort of thing. I think they had to call the cops, if I remember, which, you know, is... A, Hashem's are not new. And uh, the story is that the Duke kicked both rabbis out. He closed down both yeshivas. He said, I'm one peace and quiet here. I ain't got no time for this. Um, and Mark was in his 50s when this happened. So if that's true, uh, what a story. Now, if it's not true, then it's baloney. But if it's true, what a story. Now, I tell you the reason I mention this is, first, it was very famous about the Marik. But second of all, I seem to remember... Reading in Zebed, when his part about Simcha's Torah, that the Marik has also the famous question. I'm pretty sure it's Marik. The famous question uh, Can you uh, sell Kohen to a non Kohen on Simcha's Torah to raise money for the show? You get what I'm saying, you know? Yeah, Chasen Torah, Chasen Brazier, this and the other. What if a guy says like this? He says, I'll give big bucks to get Kohen. Not the rest of the year. Just that time. And I remember there was some case where the Cohen wouldn't leave. He said, I'm a Cohen, and that's it. And when they said, and the Marik, I think, I think said, you can do it if it's the purpose of to raise money for the show. You know, as a, as a simple story thing. And the guy made a fight, and they had to call the cops. So it was once again, Italy was a wild and crazy place. Sometimes you had to call the Italian police into a Jewish synagogue in these tiny communities because the Jewish communities, the Jews are having fistfights with each other. It reminds me of the story a couple years ago. They found in the whole of Afghanistan were two Jews left over in Kabul. Remember this? And the two Jews <laughs> wouldn't talk to each other. Each one lived a solitary life. That's who you meet, Kamach Yisrael, Goyachabars. And uh, so Marik lived in these funny circumstances. When he was kicked out, if, that's how the sto- if that story is accurate, they ended up going to Pavia. Pavia. Which is, you know, you don't know where these places are. Uh, Pavia is actually a world-famous uh, place called the Battle of Pavia in 1525, which is one of the great battles in European history, uh, when the Spanish defeated the French. However, there's a Jewish community over there, and he, once again, he set up yeshiva, and he did what he could do. Uh, and in those days, it wasn't, she wasn't an institution. She was a personality thing. So if the Rebbe left, uh, the boys followed him, those who could. But on the other hand, I don't know how the Parnassus situation worked. And he died there after a couple of years. And he died, I tell you again, he was only 60. He died being a rabbi in Pavia. So 
here's somebody whose career took him through most of the 1400s. Uh, but he's in the middle of Italy when all the Renaissance is going on. You wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it. You, you could think you're in a shtetl somewhere also. Because he's one of these people living cultural insularity. It's all Torah. You understand? You find out a lot about life because you have Shalas and Shubas and Dal Chalki Shulchan Aruch. And when his stuff was published after his death, people were amazed. And I think you know this. Yosef Kara says, I'm using this as part of Beis Yosef. The Ramah uses the mark very heavily. I sing in very heavily. It's not just another Shalas and Shubas book. And it hit the top ten. I would say any list of top ten, would, I would think, would count the Marik in there. Uh, and you can't say that about any other safer from Italy. Okay? Which is just interesting. So, uh, the greatest rabbi in Italian history, I think, I think most people would agree, would be uh, Yosef Kalan. And uh, uh, he wasn't Italian in the sense of Taramata, like many of the other Italian rabbis. He didn't go to college. Wasn't into any kind of stuff, not to take away from the others, but the Americans set a, uh, a steger, you know, a, a kind of a, a role modelship that somebody's just learning. Now, on the other hand, uh, the reason he made such a big hit is if you ever gone through the Americans, I don't think they're so easy to read, but they're very svar yeshara. You understand? You don't usually come across these forced type of logic. Uh, that's my impression. I've seen my fair share of this over the years, and uh, and and it, like I said before, he's got every kind of child in life because people turn to him from all over the place and really from everywhere. Uh, by the time he was, I would say, fifty years old, he was getting letters, shalas from hundreds of miles away, even from the Turkish Empire. Now it's funny. I was asked to do the Marik tonight. And I think last week, I can't remember, in some podcast, I made some reference, without thinking about this, I didn't know I was going to talk about Norik, to this one of the most famous stories, which uh, he got into a, a fight with the chief rabbi of Turkey, um, again, through these geichazis, through these mecharche riv. Uh, it's very famous, by the way. There was a mashoach from Yushalayim, who went to Turkey, this is in the 1400s, and uh, to raise money for something. And the chief rabbi in Turkey, this is under Ottoman Turkish Empire. This is the time of the famous Sultan Muhammad II, who was the conqueror of Constantinople. At that time, Turkey was just what you call today Turkey, plus the Shkhelik of the Balkans. And Turkey, the Ottoman Turks were at war with everybody. Especially Muhammad II, Mamusha at war with everybody. And... He was a great Turkish conqueror. They were so scared of him, Venice paid a Jewish doctor to poison him. At least that's the rumor. Uh, it's very Venetian, too. But uh, the chief rabbi of Turkey told this Mashallah, you can't raise money over here because the government will be angry. You, the money will go to Eretz Yisrael, which is under the rule of Egypt, and Egypt is at war with Turkey. Does that make sense? This has always been a, a problem in Jewish history. When you have two countries at war with each other, and you, how do you get Sadaqah from A to B? For example, when the Poles and the Austrians were fighting the Turks, so what do you do with Jewish communities in Turkey, in the Turkish Empire, which is huge? If you're Ashkenazi Jew, you don't want to 
get the government angry. On the other hand, you're not trying to help the enemy, you're trying to help the hidden that live over there. You know what I'm saying? The one example I'm going to talk about in World War II is very sad. Um, I'll give you an example. Vat Hatzola. So what does Vat Hatzola want to do? They want to send money to Shiba guys, let's say, for example, in Shanghai, and Rabonim, who are in Hungary, and Romania, and, I don't know, Poland, you know, that kind of thing. Now, this is funny. On the one hand, you might say like this, don't send any money to the Japanese lines. It'll help the Japanese economy if they get dollars. Don't send any money to anybody trapped in, in uh, occupied Europe because it'll help Hitler, all the money that comes in there. Really? But a Jew has to say like this, so the Jews should starve to death because you don't want any money going to there? Do you see what I'm saying? Wherever the Jews are, they always had this, this issue. Do I focus on the Jewish side of things or do I look from the patriotic point of view? Now, the more assimilated Jews in the 19th and 20th century, Taka took the, uh, I'm sorry to say, it took the patriotic point of view. The more Agoda types took the old Jewish point of view, which is the heck with the laws, let's get the money in anyway. I want to say, in defense of the United States government, this is Roosevelt, they said, if it's going for the Yeshiva guys, you know, you can let the money in. Because they're not talking millions of dollars. But there were reformed Jews and others said, oh, don't give a penny. Now, in the case I'm talking about in the 15th century, the Mishalach couldn't raise money in Turkey. So when he moved on to other places, Italy, and ran to Marik, he mean-mouthed the chief rabbi of Turkey. And he told him that he's aboard the Risa, and um, this is all in the truth, Marik, it's all very famous. And he said that, that and, he, and he said certain things about him that were not true, but the Marik believed him, because why would a Mishalach lie? Now, <laughs> today, it's almost funny for me to ask the question, why would Mishalach lie? Now it's the other way around. Why would a Mishalach tell the truth? I don't think Mishalach may have a pig in the monas out there. Uh, <laughs> but I'm talking about at that time. And uh, so he fell for it. And one of the things he said was that he was Mater. Um, who, what was he again? He was Mater. Achlitzis uh, Mummer. You know what I mean? In other words, let's put it this way. There's always a big shot in Jewish history. And that is. Uh, lady gets married and husband dies and the brother-in-law says so she needs Yibam and the brother-in-law converted to another religion and won't give her a, a chalitza. What do you do then? It's all the question of chalitza's mummer. You understand? What do you do then? And uh, it's one of the big sugyas. And the guy told the Marik that Chief Rabbi Turk was Mater uh, her to marry without chalitza. You understand? There was another case where he told me he was Machshar get that had problems with it. I think it had not the shame of the Magarish, whatever. Now, these were not true. Um, but there's whole Chubas in Marik where he basically says, um, I'm putting you in Kherim. I'm ordering your community to fire you. And he really insulted I mean, like, you know. Now, he meant well, but in the only end, he shouldn't have trusted a Stama, a, a Mashola. It's a very famous story in Jewish legend. It's hard to pick apart the legends and the other and what is and what isn't. The reason I say it is because uh, there's a story. It might be true that the Sultan of Turkey was so angry, so peeled that he wrote to the Duke of uh, Mantua, I guess, and he said, "This this uh, rabbi of yours insulted my chief rabbi, who I am Achshav." and you should put him in chains and send him to me in Turkey where I can burn him. 
Uh, now, I don't know if that story is true or not. The only reason I'm telling you this is this would have happened uh, near, not in the 1470s. This is a, a stupid little historical thing I'm telling you here. 1470s. This Turkish sultan, he was amazing. He conquered a veldt. And his plans were, he, and he t- took over the whole Balkans, including what we call today Albania. So he was close to Italy. And he landed an army in Italy and actually captured Otranto and all that. And they nailed Catholic priests to the crosses and whatever. Uh, he was getting ready to conquer Italy. And so if he's writing to the Duke of Mantua, oh, I get this rabbi, insulted my rabbi. To me, it's a possibility. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if it's true. It's a possibility. Uh, and so like I say, the Marek uh, uh, fell for it. And he cussed him out. And he said, you know, I'm putting you in Kherim. And he said his community has to fire him and all kind of other things like that. Basically, he called him aboard the Risa. And, uh, you know, uh, and you can't pass anymore. But then later on, he found out that the whole thing was baloney. The Moshe lied. But by that time, he was old. He, was, uh, he wasn't old. I say, take that back. He was only 60 when he died. But he must have died from an illness. Now, in those days, there were so many sicknesses going around. Nothing can surprise you. And basically, um, basically he said, uh, I was wrong and I'm sending my son to apologize on my behalf. You understand? Uh, I'm apologizing on my behalf. And, uh, and the story is that the, Tur- the, the Turkish chief robber was a class act and he said, I forgive him, there's no problem, I understand he's a victim of Lashon Hara. See, even from the biggest gadome like the Marik, you can, you know, unless you have a certain built-in skepticism, uh, what's the right word, quality, you can believe bad things about other people, okay? So we're left with the image of somebody who, uh, by virtue of his scholarship, came to command a huge uh, reputation, which grew much after his death. So what I mean is, in his lifetime, nothing was published. So basically, it was word of mouth. And his fame reached all over Europe. So that can only mean that a Ashkenazi Jew traveled in business from Germany to Italy, came across the Marik, took a look at him, watched him, and said, oh my God, this guy's amazing. Came back to Germany and said, I was in Italy, and they got a Pisic over there like you never believe. And then this guy had a friend who went to Prague, and he spread the word over there in Prague. These are reputations were made once in a while. Once after he died, which it was, you know, like I say, in 1480, after he died, and they published his safer, the Chibis and Marek, everybody was like, wow. And I'll, I'll say it again, the Marek became one of the uh, classic works because of the Svara that he uses in answering all the Shilas. And um, attained a, a, a great authority and became one of the building blocks of the Shulchanar. There aren't too many published Shilas and Chibis you can say that about. Uh, now, he was Italian, even though he came from the Ashkenazic background, but all the Italian Jews in Northern Italy came from the Ashkenazic background. And so, we're left with a picture of somebody who represented one derech that Italian Jewry can go, and many did. And that is the derech of Torah only. Not Torah Mata. Okay? Uh, many are under mistaken impression that most of the Jews went to Torah Mata, or term derech, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that sort of thing. And many Jews in Italy were. But it is also true that many Jews in Italy were not. 
okay? And uh, I think the main influence in this direction, in my personal opinion, was the Marik. That's what I think. Because the other, the, the big yeshivas elsewhere, not his yeshiva, uh, you, had, you had Russian yeshivas and others who themselves were college graduates. Uh, I wouldn't say that they were college professors, like uh, Messer Leon, but they were uh, college graduates. And I mean, even some of the biggest gadolim. But uh, the, at the same time, there are also many who kind of rejected that, and they said, "I live in Italy, but I'm not part of Italy. You know, I live in Jew, I live in Jewville. You know what I mean? The Torah, the Torah culture. So uh, I think when we look at the Marik from this, Marik from this uh, perspective, uh, it comes across very interesting. And uh, what can I tell you? If you, the the Marik was republished in a nice format, I guess I don't know." 30 years ago? Something like that. Been around for a while, you know, with nice block print and all the rest of it. And they did a nice job with the notes. He divides everything up, not into showrishes. I don't know why. Instead of halacha number this, it's showrish number that. And he has a kitzer piske at the end, uh, which is like a sikum, which shows he's very orderly and organized. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, the marik is a limud. You, you can't, in my opinion, you can't read through it so fast. It has to be studied closely, because like heavy duty stuff, right? And uh, he knows everything up to his time, and, and he's uh, no even noting it. So um, perhaps one way of approaching this is go see what the Marik has to say about Hanukkah. That might be an interesting uh, mahalo in there. And uh, you, I, I'm serious now. It'd be pretty interesting to what, what you end up uh, when, what you end up discovering. And see if you can see, as they say, the uh, old style of learning, which is very different than what we do today. Anyway, that's what I wanted to uh, share with you. And with that, I bid you a good week.